Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast, as per usual. Before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. Firstly, today, Doug Balzer is teaching and bringing an end to our series, Finding Complete Joy. Doug and his wife, Terry are members here at Southview and have previously served for many years in pastoral ministry here in Alberta. And Doug, for the past 14 years and currently serves on our district leadership team as the Director of Innovation. Doug is also an author of two books, Light Up the Dark and The Empowerment Pivot. A reminder that at the end of this month, we'll be changing how we communicate with our viewpoint. So in order to receive it or to continue receiving this viewpoint, you'll need to join the Southview Group Update Group on Realm. And the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out that weekly viewpoint, which I just mentioned. And you can find a link to it in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the new group I just mentioned. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would really love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be opened and expectant. Because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Well, hello, church family. So good to be with all of you today, those of you who are gathered in this room and those of you who are joining online, wherever you are. I gotta say, it feels really good for myself and Terry to say, Hello, church family. Uh, This is our church family, and we're so grateful for this church. uh, We've been here for a couple of years now, part of you. Although you may not see us a lot, uh, we're often in other churches, ministering and and helping out and doing different things. So I like to refer to myself as the perfect church member, where I don't take a parking stall, but I tithe, and I leave room for other people to be here. Uh, But but in all seriousness, we, we just are so grateful for this church, so grateful for the leadership of of our pastors, of our elders, and how they are leading us to be disciples of Jesus, people who are more in tune to the voice of God and are following him in obedience and teaching others to do the same by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is why we exist, not only as Southview Church, but as the people of God. Quick confession. Yesterday morning, I was awoken around 4.30, 5 a.m., which is, some people would call it an ungodly hour. But I was so excited to dive into this text. Now, this is not typical for me, but I, I realized as I was waking up at 4.30, oh, I can't sleep anymore, and I just had to uh, go and dive into it again, because it is such a good news text. And if you have a Bible with you, either paper or digital, would you open it, if you have one, and, and turn to 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 28. We're going to read a number of verses here as we continue in this journey entitled Finding Complete Joy. And the passage that we're going to dive into is in some ways a bit strange because it doesn't initially come across as a good news text. If you read it through the wrong lens, it can even come across as a discouraging, condemning text unless, and we will get into this, unless you capture what Paul refers to as the mystery of the gospel. 
and the author John here refers to or alludes to in similar ways, then it is such a good news text. So let's read, beginning 1 John 2, 28. And remember, friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appears so that he might take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is, of, is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to detroy, destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Again, the word of the Lord. And there have been times in my life, um, even as a pastor, even as a leader in a family of churches, where I would not have wanted to read the first verse there in chapter 2, verse 28, where he says, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. And there have been times in my life, even as a pastor, where if I was honest with you, I would have been praying an opposite prayer. Oh God, don't show up now. You ever had that? Maybe some of you feel that way right now. That if Jesus were to return in his glory, you might be saying, not this moment, not this moment. I might feel ashamed. I may not feel the kind of anticipation that John has here. It was about in 2010, 2011, and I was so disturbed by the level of anger that was bubbling up in my heart. Anger, frustration, had younger kids at the time, um, and my wife, Terry, would always say, you weren't a horrible dad, but, you know, I would, I would speak in, in tones and, and with a level of harshness that I was just so grieved over at times. And I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know where, what the source was in, inside my own heart. And maybe you can relate to those kinds of things here. And then you read here in 1 John 3, it says uh, in a number of places that, you know who the children of God are because they're the ones that don't keep on sinning. Oh, but my own life still has sin in it. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And at first glance, this can just seem like a discouraging text, does it not? But yet, there are clues in here. 
And in that season in 2010, I got to the end of my rope in some ways, and I began to seek God through prayer, through seasons of fasting, and it wasn't asking God for anything. It was more of demanding him. You are plan A, and there's no plan B. And my prayers kind of went something like this. God, you've got to show me how to break free of this. I need freedom from this pattern. Can you relate in your life? I don't even know where this anger comes from, Lord, so I don't know where to apply whatever medication that you might have for me. I'm lost. Jesus, would you come and help me? And turns out, he did. Let's move to some of the other good news aspects of this passage. We will resolve that story, but let's just pause there for a minute. In chapter 3, verse 2, I love this. No, dear friends, no, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Oh, I love that. What you will be has not been made known. What you will yet be has not been made known. And here's the truth about all of us. Our brokenness, my brokenness, your brokenness, is way deeper than we can ever conceive. But the real you, the God that breathed you into being, the God has redeemed you, you're way better than you would ever know. And somehow that's going to happen when Christ appears. What we are meant to be will suddenly then be. And here is where that clue of the mystery of the gospel and the, the key, the pivot point, the turning point in this passage is right here. When Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There is something about encountering Jesus. There is something about being in the very presence of Jesus that transforms us. And I love this, past, this series that we're in, Finding Complete Joy. And if you've got your Bible in front of you, you just go right to the beginning of it where John writes, and you can just hear his enthusiasm, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen, we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you. Oh, and we get to be a part of this too. We might say, well, John, you had an advantage because you had interaction with the real Christ physically. But maybe we have the advantage because until Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit did not reside within us. And in this very passage here in verse 9, it talks about no one who is born of God's will will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. So this seed that is in me, and if you know Christ, this seed is in you as well. That seed is the person of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He, among many other things, he reveals Jesus to you. And here is my favorite part of the text that we've read. It's in verse 6. And it says this, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And you might say, well, how can I see Jesus? I mean, we don't live 2,000 years ago. How can I know him like those who wrote these books in the New Testament can know him? 
Well, I used to think that these kinds of things we would read in Scripture, that we can see Christ, that we can know Christ like that, I thought they were metaphors. Until 2011, about three months into my desperate prayer and fasting season, oh God, you've got to come change my heart, and I have no idea where to start on this. So again, it was about the end of a three-month time, and I was uh, with a group of youth pastors at a camp in Alberta. I wasn't teaching. I wasn't leading it. Uh, my friend was teaching, and he had the communion elements uh, in front of him, just as we have those here today to conclude our time together. And as he was about to partake in communion and lead us in communion, I had my eyes closed, and, and I was thinking, okay, I've got a four-and-a-half-hour drive to get home. Maybe when he... When he's praying in between the bread and the cup, I can slip out and I can, no one will notice and I can start driving home. Like, I know you're all way more holy than I am when Pastor Clive leads. You're completely dialed in. You're not thinking about the NFL game later on or anything like that. You're way better than me, I know. But on that day, the knowledge of Christ and the sight of Christ ceased to become, ceased to be a metaphor there was nothing more real. So I took the bread, and I popped it in my mouth, and I wasn't even seeking Jesus in that moment. It just had been the, the tail end of a three-month um, season of seeking him. And I saw what I would suggest to you was the first vision of Christ that I'd ever seen. Here's the backstory. I was adopted at birth and into a, you know, a good Mennonite home, um, and yet I still struggled with all kinds of rejection for years and years and years. And my cousins and my siblings, we now laugh at it, uh, laugh at that, how difficult I was of a kid I was in those days. Uh, in today's language, people would say, oh, Doug has behavioral challenges and probably have some kind of acronym uh, affixed to me in some way or another. Um, but I wasn't an easy kid to parent and I wasn't an easy kid to play with. And at the family farm in Saskatchewan, where I would spend weeks every summer and Christmas and Easter, there was a game that uh, myself and my couple of cousins and a couple of siblings would play every day. And the game was called Cheetah and the Rabbits. I was the cheetah, they were the rabbits. And the game was very simple. How can the rabbits stay away and avoid the cheetah all day? Every day, day after day, week after week, year after year. This was the memory that came to my mind when I put the bread on my tongue. This memory was so deeply buried that some of you will be able to relate to this. I, I would not let myself go there because it was such a painful memory for me. It was the, the largest representation of pain in my childhood. And I close my eyes and I see my cousins and siblings laughing and running away. And I start to weep. But then guess who else showed up on the screen in my mind? His name is Jesus. And he was standing about four or five feet away from me with a kind face and an outstretched arm. And in that moment, I heard him say to me, don't worry. I'll never leave you. And in that moment, my identity started to switch 
from the one who is rejected to the one whom will never be left alone by Jesus. Verse 6 again. Let me read it again. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Let's be really clear, friends. Jesus does not invite you into a try harder version of faith. Jesus invites you into a, an experience of faith that is truly transforming by his presence. The presence of Jesus changes lives. And you can see the enthusiasm in the first couple of verses when John writes, that which we've seen, we've heard, we've touched, we need you to have this same experience because that will make our joy complete because you will know him. And do you see the connection from 1 verse 1 and 2 to 3 verse 6? No one continues to sin if they've seen him or known him. Now, let me be really candid. It's not like in that moment I never had anger anymore. But it was in that moment where instead of persisting in a particular sinful behavior, I didn't continue in my sin. Last week, Craig teached on abiding. The last verse in um, the last verse he touched on was ch uh, chapter 2, verse 27. Just as he taught you, remain in him. Some translations, as Craig rightfully taught, say abide in him or continue in him. This is about presence, 100% about presence. If someone is abiding in your house, their presence is there. And so we, disciples of Jesus, who long to hear the voice of our Father, it's about proximity, being in his presence, obeying and doing his will, inviting other people to experience this very, very same Jesus. So when it says here, those who continue to sin are not in Christ, it is not a condemnation for you who are in Christ. It is an invitation to come and experience the Lord, to give him access, to invite him into those parts of your soul that are still shadowy, still has too much darkness to invite him into those places where he can transform you, to see him, to know him. These ain't metaphors. It's as real as it gets. And there's so many other places in the New Testament that this similar reality is talked about. And this is uh, John's version, and Paul has his, and Peter has his. And let me just breeze through a couple of them for you. So in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about the old covenant with Moses who had a veil on his face and he came down from the mountain and eventually the glory departed his face because he was no longer in the presence of God. And oh, there's a lesson to teach for church leaders to remain in the presence of God. But he didn't take his veil off. And then Paul's talking about in that passage where now in the new covenant, and I, now I quote, we who with unveiled faces no masks, the real you. We who with unveiled faces, as we gaze upon the glory of Christ, we are transformed. Where do you need to take a mask off? I used to teach this pre-COVID, and you know, no one talk, thought about masks in the same way then. 
but you know what I mean. The real you, where the masks come off, and you take that version of you, the unprettied up version of you, the real you, those parts of you that continue to experience behavioral sin, and we bring that to him. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. He goes on in Ephesians 3 verse 19. He's talking about, and I always get the order mixed up. He's talking about the love of God, the love of Christ, how wide and high and deep and long, or it could have been how long and wide and deep and high. You know that passage. But then he says, not just to know that love, but to know that love that surpasses knowledge. Oh, I love that. It's not just a head knowledge, it's experiential. And I know Pastor Clyde's been talking about the Gnostics as we've been going through 1 John, and that word um, beyond knowledge is gnosis, where we get Gnostics. But this one in, in um, this one right here in Ephesians, he's, he's talking about it's going beyond that, it's, it's participatory, it's experiential. Jesus is meant to be seen, he's meant to be touched. He's meant to be heard. His presence is meant to transform us. And then in 1 Peter 1.3, where Peter writes, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Okay, well, thank you, Peter. So that means there's no excuses, right? There's no excuses. That's, that's what Peter's saying. But he doesn't end there like I ended there. He, goes, he says this, we have everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. And that word knowledge there is that same word, gnosis, where we get the Gnostics. But this one's different. This one, there's an epi in front of it. Epi-gnosis. It's beyond knowledge. It's beyond knowledge. And I just wonder, maybe there's more than one or two in this room where your faith has been significantly or perhaps restrictively in your head. And we need cognitive faith. It's one of the things I love about this church that we are given towards um, the, the, the tradition of liturgy. It's shaping us and truth matters. But all of these authors of the New Testament say, oh, it goes beyond that. It is that and it is also experiential in Colossians 1.27, we sang about it here a few moments ago when Paul is talking about the mystery of the gospel that goes out to the Gentiles, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The same Christ that you can see and hear and touch, the seed of God that is planted in you, Holy Spirit, his job description, his assignment is to reveal Jesus to us. So what's God's part in all of this? And what's our part in all of this? You know that in every dimension of faith, there's always a God part, and there's always a your part. And so much of what we struggle with in faith is when we get those two mixed up, and we take on the God part, or we don't own our own part. Well, in this passage and in other passages, our part, it's pretty simple. It's to abide in him. And we see that in multiple places. In verse 27 that Craig taught last week, remain in him. It's the same word. The word is meno. Now, all of you ex-Mennonites here in the room, you know, don't take any pride in that. Remain in him. Verse 28, continue 
in him. Verse 6, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This is this abide because God's seed, verse 9, remains in him. What is, what is our part? It's to abide. It's to remain, to pursue. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, if I wrote a list, I, I think the list could be um, infinite on the different ways we can abide in Christ. Here's what I'm doing these days, and it's really working for me. When I spend time in the Word, and by the way, that would be one of the first things on the list, is being in the Word. These days, every morning when I open up the Word, I don't just read it. I say, oh, Jesus, show me where I can meet you in here today. And it's not a pursuit of checking a box. It's not a pursuit of completing a Bible reading plan. And Bible reading plans are fine. But my primary pursuit is the presence of Jesus. Jesus transforms lives. Jesus reaches down deeply into those places that cause symptoms of sin to bubble up. And he says, yeah, I see the behavior. Let's go down in my presence and address the root of these things. Our part is to abide. Our part is to obey our part is to pursue. God's part is to transform us. What does it mean to abide in Christ in your life? It's not something so much to figure out. Perhaps the best thing you could do that I could um, suggest for you is to ask Holy Spirit, teach me how I can abide in Jesus. Turns out he knows stuff. Turns out, he's highly motivated to let you know the unique pathway he has for you and you and you to be in the word, hearing the voice of the Spirit, pursuing the presence of Jesus. Are you desperate for the presence of Jesus? A number of years ago, I read, uh, reread the Narnia series. How many of you have read the Narnia series? How many have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yeah, more hands go up for that one. That's not the best book in my mind. The best book in my mind in the Narnia series is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And C.S. Lewis, who wrote this whole series, and he was very clear that the, the figure Aslan in the series is a, a depiction, a representation of Christ, the Messiah. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Aslan had gone over to the east, over the, uh, over the ocean, and they, they missed his presence. Because whenever Aslan's presence was near, there was peace. And to borrow a phrase, it made their joy complete, the presence of Aslan. And in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, they set out to pursue this presence and so they got into the boat called Dawn Treader. There are a number of people there, King Caspian, Lucy, Edmund, and a two-foot-high warrior mouse. Anyone know the name? Reepicheep. Real fighter, this uh, talking mouse. Um, it's not based on a true story, if some of you are wondering. And so it's a difficult journey. They get in this boat, and they're sailing east. And there's conflict, there's arguments, there's dissension, there's division. They're running out of supplies. Storms hit. 
The boat is in disrepair. The sails are tattered. There's distractions and temptations along the way. And then somebody calls a meeting on the deck. And what's on the agenda for the day? It's simply this. The journey is too hard. We've got to turn back. Let's give up. And right when they were about to reap a cheap, the two-foot-tall warrior mouse, he stands up and he says the following. My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. How much do you long for the presence of Jesus to intersect your yet-to-be-redeemed places? Where do you need the presence of Jesus to come and transform you? And in a moment, we're going to the table of the Lord here. And in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that you know, no one should partake in this in, a, in an unworthy manner, that one ought to examine themselves. Well, in one sense, aren't we all unworthy of the table of the Lord? And when we examine ourselves, we're not trying to examine ourselves towards, okay, I, th I think I'm perfect. I think I have my act together, and therefore I can partake in the Lord's table because I'm somehow worthy. We're not. Any worthiness we have is on the merits of Christ, not on my own merits. So what does it mean to examine ourselves? Well, I think John gives us a clue. Where do you need the presence of Jesus to transform you? Where are those places in your life that are still shadowy, where darkness has too much of a hold, the yet-to-be-redeemed places, the places that if Jesus came back right now, you'd be like, oh, don't look over here, don't look over here. One of the greatest ways we can honor the blood, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is when we come to the table, we invite him into those places. That is how we examine ourselves. And when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we can in our own hearts say, Jesus, I receive you in those places. Come and transform me. I need to see you. I need to hear you. I need your presence revealed to me where I need to obey. But at the end of the day, we need his presence to transform us. No one who continues to sin has seen him or heard him. So the act of partaking in the Lord's table is really ingesting him and desiring him to go deep, deep, deep into our hearts. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's for you. This is a gift. So if you would take the bread that you have before you and before you partake in partnership with the Holy Spirit who is the seed that the faith of Christ, the glory of Christ would grow out of Ask Holy Spirit, where 
do I need the presence of Jesus? Oh, Jesus, where? And then as we eat, give him access to those deep places for him to come and do a new work in your heart. Let's eat together. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is, this is my blood of the new covenant. There's a new way to access God. It's through Jesus. And there is access for everybody based on the merits of Christ. Let's drink together. And so, Jesus, we, your people, we welcome you into the deep places of our heart and soul. Really, it's our act of surrender to make our bodies as a living sacrifice. And we thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross that has defeated the power of darkness, defeated the works of the enemy as we read in 1 John 3. You have accomplished all of this. And now, Lord Jesus, may you be loose to accomplish this deeply in our lives as we welcome you and pursue your presence and learn to abide in you and continue in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand, friends? Would you stand? And as we go into this week, I want to give you a blessing from Romans chapter 15 that's been on my heart for months now. And it simply goes like this, and may you receive this from the Lord. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.